This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book, and it is number two of a series of studies in the book of Nehemiah. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture, and if you who are listening care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read together the 16th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. We are looking, as you know, at this book of Nehemiah. And I suppose that most of you recognize the reason why we have read such a passage as Acts 16. Here we have exemplified what the Apostle has said elsewhere. There's open doors and many adversaries. They go together. But do you notice the first adversary was very insidious? What fault can you find in these words? These men are the servants of the Most High God which show unto us the way of salvation. There's not a word there that is not true. And yet the apostle was grieved and commanded that the spirit who was speaking those true words through this woman should come out, and he did. You see, it's not enough for a person to merely speak true words. We are told and warned in the New Testament that the evil one who is the deceiver is an angel of light and his ministers are ministers of righteousness. How much we need then the guidance and the equipment and all that God can give us by way of illustration and warning, lest we should be trapped. The scripture says that we are not ignorant of his, that's the evil one's devices. But that's not true of all of us, is it? So that we've got an opportunity in this wonderful book of Nehemiah, going right back to early days, some of it you might say old-fashioned teaching, but nevertheless it's, it's the same sort of thing. Here is a man who has been led by God, he's been equipped by the ruler of the country from which he came out, he's gone back to restore the wall first of all and then afterwards the temple in Jerusalem, and the opponents are not the powers that be, not the Gentile kings, the opponents are all relatives, they're all descendants of Abraham that are opposing this man. And there's one of the first things that the scripture says. When you get an opposition from an ungodly outside world, you more or less know what to do with it. But what are you going to do with a witness that comes along and says, these men are the servants of the Most High God, who show unto us the way of salvation? Are you going to be trapped and say, oh, that's fine, friends. That's what they want. So I'm, I'm hoping that in this study of Nehemiah, we're going to continually think about ourselves. And those of you who have access to the early volumes of the Brian, you will realize in the articles that are written there that many times I speak very, very feelingly because some of the very things that are mentioned there, we've had to experience ourselves. So without much further ado, shall we turn back to this book of Nehemiah and consider uh, the teaching that we get after the record ends with um, Nehemiah being sent by his master and arriving at um, Jerusalem. It says in verse 9 of chapter 2, Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me, so he was very well equipped. Cyrus, who was the son of Esther, who was the Jewish, who became the queen after the deposing of uh, 
Vashti, you remember in the book of Esther, she was sitting beside the king when Nehemiah made his prayer and, his, and said, pray to the Lord, and he said unto the king, I'm sad because of my, my city, the city of my God is in such disrepair. This man was helping all he could. But when the man reached there, instead of finding those on the spot who were going to willingly share with him in this reconstruction, we start reading in verse 10 of some of those who were his enemies. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So will you now for a moment turn with me to one or two passages in this book to collect before our very eyes these enemies that Nehemiah had to face. There's a whole group of them. Let's get them before us and whether we can deal with every one of the passages afterwards is a matter of time. We've looked at chapter 2 verse 10. Now look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian is another one. Heard it? They laughed us to scorn and despised us. And they said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then you turn from that passage to chapter 401. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies, so here they are, growing in number, heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon uh, the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono, that they thought to do me mischief. What a great restraint I'm exercising on myself there, friends, aren't I? Uh, look at um, verse 10. And afterward I came into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahetabiel, who was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. Oh, was he working it up properly? I said, should such a man as I flee? That's the way to treat them, friends. You see, they couldn't get it in one way, so they got it in another. We don't know what the man was going to say to him in the temple. They were trying to put the fear of God into him in a wrong sense, as the word is used. And um, in verse 14, My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and on the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets, that have would put me in fear. And then, in the 17th and 18th verse, Moreover in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them, or oh, here it started, friends. The nobles of Ju Judah are now entering into this conspiracy. They've been trapped somehow or another to start this correspondence. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him. Why? Why? 
because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berechiah. All this was a mix-up of families now, and that was the way in which the evil one was getting a foothold in this work. Then in chapter 13, verse 4, we're getting near to the end of them now, but there's quite enough, isn't there, to intimidate anybody. Verse 4, and before this, this is 13.4, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied unto Tobiah. So he is a very high priest now, allied with Tobiah, and he had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem, for in the two and thirty years, and so he goes on, and it says in the next verse, verse 7, And I came to Jerusalem, and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah, in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore, therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah, out of the chamber and had it fumigated, not with sulphur but with frankincense, and got rid of his evil soda odour. And so the story goes on. Um, the the twenty eighth, the twenty eighth verse. And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Look at it. You've got right round. What a mix. And that is repeated over and over again in the history of the church. All this tangle. And back and behind it is the manoeuvring of the evil one. The arch deceiver. So these stories have not been written just as a matter of historic interest. They are warnings to us. But we read that these things were written for our learning upon whom the ends of the world have come. Well now let's have a look a little bit closely. A little more closely at the way these enemies sought to accomplish their work. We'll look first of all at um, chapter 4. If you'd like to look up the history of the Samaritans and the Ammonites and all that, you'll discover that they're all relatives. They all go back to Abraham. The Ammonites are descendants of Abraham through Lot, who is nephew. So, we are being told in this story not so much to be on our guard against the opposition of the outside world, we can cope with that perhaps, but the opposition of that which comes from within. When I come to think that even the Apostle Paul himself wrote to the Ephesians and said, I know after my departure, grievous wolves shall enter in not sparing the flock, and of your own selves shall arise those who will lead away disciples after them. He couldn't stop it. It only shows you how insidious this effect of the, on the mind is of this deceiver and the way he works. So we'll give this in our attention this evening. Now the first reference is in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, 
Oh, first of all, no, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 19. First of two, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, he's always called the servant, you know, this, that's his mark. What Sanballat says, he does a little echo afterwards. You've met that sort of person, haven't you? And Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn. They laughed us to scorn. And despised us. Despised us. These words are used concerning Christ. They laughed him to scorn, and they despised him. That's the way in which this is being reflected, as it were, upon ourselves. And they say, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Of course, that was to put fear into their minds. Because to rebel against the king in those days was, of course, a serious and a fatal matter. So they laughed us to scorn and they despised us. That was their first attitude. Well then, we come to chapter 4 where I was looking just now. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. <laughs> Mockery. This word is used of Christ in Psalm 22, 7. Shall we look and see how these men are being treated like his Lord was in the fuller sense? Just, just to be sure that these words are not used at random. And also it will give us the feeling that we may be sharing his reproach. Psalm 22, 6, I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. He was mocked. He was despised. He was a reproach of men. And the word despised is Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men. And the reproach is Psalm 69 where he speaks about um, reproach, I believe, has broken my heart. Or if that's not the one, it's a parallel to it. 69 verse 20. Reproach hath broken my heart. Yes, it. So here you see that service to the Lord in a day of reproach mustn't expect to have great adulation and wonderful notices and you'll get just the opposite. I was only looking at a past piece of witness many years ago. I read a description of myself. I won't tell you all the things they said, but among other things they said, I was a cripple going up and down the land trying to teach people. Well, I know I haven't got very much physique and I'm not much to look at and my, all my photographs come out as though I'm uh, frowning and looking very vicious. But uh, it's not very flattering to read just the one little description of yourself. You're a cripple. Well, that's just the idea. Anything to be little, you see. Anything to, as it were, follow in the steps of this principle, mock. What do these feeble Jews? Verse 2. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? I wonder if he really thought they were feeble. Because he wouldn't need to worry about them if, if they were actually feeble, would he? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? And you'll read about that rubbish a bit further down in verse 10. Oh, it was real. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. 
there is much rubbish so that we're not able to build the wall. And those of us who go back to the beginning, even of this little witness, which we represent here in this chapel, realize the consciousness of the rubbish that had to be cleared before you could get a hearing. All the undispensational teaching, all the traditional teaching that's come into the church and foisted upon Bible study, it becomes such a burden, you think, shall we ever get through it and get to the positive teaching? And here's no trifle here. The rubbish took the strength and heart out of them. And our adversary said, they should not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. So now they're beginning to threat, uh, threaten them as well as despise them. You'll find that the Nehemiah meets the case by calling the people to their work and to arm them against the adversary, but we're still going down this story, first of all, of the way in which these people are being uh, disciplined in this particular way. Now it says in verse 7, Uh, so it says in verse 6, So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. The words joined together unto the half is almost our expression, making both ends meet. At least, when I read it, 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 it comes like that to me. They said they've done it. You may remember that when I prepared the Jubilee number, I put in the first balance sheet that we published, the poor little balance sheet that we carried forward, what was it, five and nine percent me, or something like that. If it was five and eleven percent me, I'm not much out, am I? It looks so pathetic that Mr. Brillinger says, we can't do this again, we're only telling our enemies. Oh, they said, look at it, look at it. Here's a wonderful work that he started, and the whole balance sheet at the end carried forward five and nine percent me. What do these feeble Jews? But eventually they said, they made both ends meet. Here the wall, their building's done, what are they going to do now? They're going to put another number out. They started a new volume. You see? Oh, you could understand, friends, perhaps a little bit, how the book of Nehemiah was a book I'd read over and over again to myself and thought, here it comes again, here it comes again. That's a word for me. And I commend it to you too, because this has been written for our learning. And if one's experience can be put forward as a illustration of its value, then it might be useful to others in a similar context. And so we go down here, um, that's the um, verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sanballat, and Tobiah, and the Arabians, and the Ammonites, and the Ashtonites, I say, let them all come. That's what happens, they're growing in their opposition. They begin to take notice, they begin to announce uh, certain words and denounce certain meetings and uh, warn people in their meetings. But that's a good sign, friends. They're beginning now to take another attitude. Instead of saying, what do these people choose? They say they've got the wall built. They've made both ends meet. What are we going to do now? It says, oh, I'll, I'll finish reading this verse. And the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped. Then they were very wroth, and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. So the fight is on now. And then we read later on, of course, as you might expect, that the Lord is fighting for them. In the um, 
the uh, ninth and tenth verses we have the much rubbish. And then we come to chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, and these words are written. Our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst of them and slay them and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence you shall return unto us, they will be upon you. I'm going to ask anybody if they really know what those words mean. From all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. The margin says that from all places ye must return to us. You say, well, I don't know what it means. Don't worry, friends, it doesn't matter what it means. It was one of those gibberish things to put the fear into you. And they said it ten times. Ten times. Do you remember our Saviour's attitude to this arch-deceiver? He was tempted and he said, If thou be the Son of God. And our Saviour replied, It is written. And then he took him up and said, For one act of worship, he said, It is written. Three times he was tempted, three times he answered in the same way. Ten times they said this, and there was only one answer to give them. Otherwise, the moment you start truckling with them, you've opened the door and the enemy will come in like a flood. And so we have the emphasis upon the building of this wall. Now they have a change of tactics. The evil one knows when he's beaten, but he doesn't withdraw, he comes back again. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 2. Now it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of the heard that I had builded the wall and there was no breach left therein, now at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together. It's remarkable how these people can use a scriptural term without knowing it. In verse 7, and thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words, Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. You see, they're quoting the very scripture without knowing it. Now let's come back again, where he speaks about um, meet together. Meet together. That's the very essence of it. How shall two meet together? How shall two walk together? except they have met. And where is the meeting place? The mercy seat. And these people are enemies to it. You see, the program is changing, isn't it? Instead of saying, you're feeble, you can't do it, and mocking at them, and then attacking them, they're saying, um, now, look, don't you think you're wasting your time? Don't you think it's a, a bad principle to be up there with that little tin pot work you're doing? Come down to this plain, and that means a broad open place. But when I look at the original meaning of the word plain, I'm, I find that it's something which has been brought about by a schism or a division. Oh yes, you can go out into the great open plain with all its dividing. But you're coming down from the work that God's given you to do. And as I said when I read it, I exercised great restraint, didn't I? I suppose you saw the word, oh no, didn't you? Well, there it is. 
That's the only answer we can give to all these invitations to come onto a broader platform and not hide your light under a bushel and so on and so on. Oh, I had it, friends. I'm speaking out of my own heart's experience. I've had some come to me when I could hardly rub two pennies together and say to me, if only you would soft pedal and not say that and don't print that, you could fill Westminster Chapel or anything like it. That's what they told me. And I said, supposing I didn't have a bad conscience, what good would that do to me or anyone? But don't think these are simple things, friends, they're not. And that's why I'm using this as a very personal thing. I want it to be personal. I want this to go on record. And when it's in the tape that there shall be those who shall hear that we hope by the mercy of God that those who are responsible for the Berean Forward Movement and its future will give Nehemiah a big place whenever they have to settle problems and have to decide whether they'll do this or do that. So, be a bit um, sympathetic with me if you think that's I'm making too much of a personal do of this for the moment. And so it says, um, that thou, it says, they charged him in verse 6, you're doing all this that thou mayest be their king. Oh yes, I've had it. I've been called all sorts of uh, autocratic names right up to a pope. Yes, yes, it goes on. You get the same thing over and over again. If you stand square for what God has entrusted to you, then that's obstinacy, or that's popery, or that's overruling the consciences of your brethren and so on. You see? And so you begin to think, oh, am I like that? Oh, perhaps I'd better be a little bit easier then. Oh, says the evil one. That's the idea. The door is open. Now, I'll give you a little illustration. This is what I had to do. Some time ago, there came into this chapel somebody, I'd never met him before, and he spoke to me and he said, uh, I hope that you believe in a free ministry in this chapel. And I said to him, without waiting half an hour for him to explain what he meant, I said, and does that mean, uh, now you've said that, I fall on your neck and say, will you come and take the service for me next Sunday? He <laughs> practically said, yes, I was going to lead up to that, but he'd take the wind out of his sails. Oh, but I said, look, friend, the benches, the pews in this chapel are as broad as redemption itself, but that pulpit's so narrow, I, I can hardly get into it. We'd have to know you very, very intimately before we handed over that responsibility. Well, I never saw him again. You see, all those things are samples of what could be done if we were to slacken with regard to our sense that is required in stewards that a man shall be found faithful. And Nehemiah stood a faithful man. They tried to intimidate him. They tried to frighten him. Then they tried to bribe him. Then they tried to get him to come down to a conference. But he had enough spiritual insight to see it didn't matter what they did. It was all directed to one end. That the work should cease. They grieved that a man of God had come to restore that which had been so long broken down. So we have this in um, in this uh, chapter 6 verse 4. Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort. They were persistent, weren't they? Four times. Four different times. And I answered them after the same manner. Yes, I answered them after the same manner. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto thee, in like manner the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. Well, that's modern enough, isn't it? 
an open letter. Now, if you put yourself back into those days and know how they sent correspondence, it was put into a, most likely into a silken bag and sealed and delivered to the one, a, a governor of a city like Nehemiah. Yet they were going to send this letter unsealed so that anybody in the course of its transit could see what they were saying to Nehemiah. You see, their attitude, an open letter. Well, today an open letter is still used. They use a different way of approach. But it's a most a cowardly way of dealing with any part of God's word. An open letter. Not signing it, allowing its sort of little poison to drop in the minds of folk. There was one some years ago that was circulated and it went from this country to America and it said back to me, who's writing this about the Brian? I didn't know until one day, just by accident, I spotted a letter and the one who showed it to me didn't know what he was doing and he said, that's old so-and-so writing to me. I thought, I've got it. And it was old so-and-so. And believe me, he stopped for it. An open letter is a thing we cannot tolerate. Then I think I've told you that another magazine written by someone who was giving exposition to scripture fell foul of me for some reason or another and said that he'd set up two columns of print about my morals. But if I would put in the Berean Expositor the typewritten confession that he'd sent to me, he'd let me off. Wasn't that kind of him, friend? And I wrote back to him and said, it's possible you may have an inch a bit or two to spare. If so, let me know and I'll tell you a bit more about my morals. Well, there was never any more of that for him. But you see, the same thing goes on. You can easily be intimidated and the work will, will, in the moment you do that, the work goes down. And the breach is there and it begins to get greater until it enters like a flood. Well, then we look again at this... Um, in verse 10, Afterward I came unto the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Merahibiel, who was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God. Now why he was shut up, nobody knows. But the word does mean, like um, Jeremiah said, he got so weary, you know, Jeremiah of opposition, he said, I will speak no more in the name of the Lord. And then the fire burned with him and he couldn't help it. And the word means to restrain, to hold back. And it seems as though this man may have said, you know, I've got something near my that you ought to know, but um, let's get into the temple and shut the door because it's busy. Trying to make his flesh creep, you see. And Nehemiah said, uh, then he said, I perceive that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me. For Tobiah and Sandalad had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid, and do so, and sin. Nehemiah's conception of sin was to be afraid, and be sidetracked from the work that God had given him to do. And on top of that, he's got a prophetess and the rest of the prophets that were all trying to put him in fear. And so we have the story of this man going on and on through this book, I can't help but realising the wonder of the story. Uh, in um, another part of the book, you read that uh, some were rehearsing the good deeds of Jophiah before him. 
saying what a, a splendid fellow he was. Now, what verse is that? 17 to 19. Oh, yes. This is chapter 6. 17. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was of the son in law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, the son of Joan, and Tatan, the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me, and uttered my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. All sorts of ways to undermine the truth that God had given. Well now shall we turn to the New Testament and just get a little hint from the passages that we shall turn to in closing that these things have been repeated. We'll look at the Acts of the Apostles, but not the 16th chapter for the moment. We'll look at the 8th chapter. The 8th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, verse 9 to 11. And, uh, but there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was a great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Well then, in the 21st verse, Peter said, or verse 20, Peter said to him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. There was neither part nor lot in this matter for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Verse 23. You see, here is this coming in. This man who was uh, a sorcerer, who had believed the truth up to a certain point, but nevertheless was not quite clear, and the apostle had to repudiate his offer, thy money perish with thee. Or again in chapter 13, this is not Peter, this time this is Paul. In chapter 13, he's on his way to the great mission that the Lord had called, and in verse 6, and when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Strange that he had that name, wasn't it? Bar-Jesus. And Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And so on. So here was another attempt. Then we read just now, or at least we, some of us read just now, the 16th chapter of the Acts. And there again, you see, the door was opened. The man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And then they were met by this poor girl who was possessed of a, a spirit of python. And although she said words that were true, and said, these are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation, Paul could not tolerate that the evil one, even when he spoke truth, should in any measure give them a push and justify them. So he called the demon out. And then these people 
that they said he's taken away our means of living, they were put into prison, and they were only liberated because they began to fear what would be the consequences if the authorities knew that Romans had been put into prison and beaten without being uh, tried. And then in the 18th chapter, we're still on the same story, the 12th verse and 13th. And when Gallio was the deputy of Archaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. So they found another way in which they could perhaps move the arm of the authorities to stop the Christian faith. And the 19th chapter, verse 19, here we're at Ephesus, and many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. But, you see, this took away the the uh, gains of those who made shrines for the worshippers at the, of the shrines at the temple of Diana, verse 24, for certain uh, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, who be called together with the workmen of like occupation, and says, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth, and if this man is allowed to go on preaching this gospel, and the people burn up their magic books and they don't worship Diana, we are done. So you get all sorts of motives being stirred up with one object to cause the work to cease. And then if you will turn to Paul's last epistle to Timothy, I think it's about time I come to an end, but I want to turn to that, you'll see that even in the last epistle that Paul wrote, he's putting his finger on these same activities. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from thee, of whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. Now we don't know much about these men, their names are there, but they are put there as samples of what may be expected when we draw near to the last days, which the Apostle has very much in mind in this epistle. Those who turned away from him, two of them are named Phygellus and Hermogenes. In chapter 2, verse 17, we have two more. Verse 16, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker or a gangrene, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, two more, who concerning the truth have heard. And then two more occur in chapter 3, verse 8. I think we'll read down from verse 1 to verse 8, because this is speaking about the days which are closing in upon us. I'm no prophet. I have no knowledge how long this dispensation will last and when it will end. The only thing about it is that the very same chapter 24 of Matthew that says no man knows the date or the hour upbraided them because they did not read the signs of the times. And most of us are beginning to read the signs of the times enough to know that the nations round about Jerusalem and that area are all being replaced and reshuffled to pick up the threads laid down nearly 2,000 years ago. Now then, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. There shall be lovers of their own selves, 
lovers of silver. I'm purposely changing the translation so that you shall see the emphasis upon love in this. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. It begins and ends with a double emphasis upon love. Look across to chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that have loved his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me. Why, has he given up the truth? No. He's loved this present world. Love. It's getting cold. It's running out. Well, now we go back to chapter 3. They have a form of godliness, denying the power of denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as jams and jamberies, here's two more. There's, there's the others we've read just now, uh, Herminius and Philetus, Hermogenes, and here we have jams and jamberies. They are the names of the miracle workers in the days of Moses when he stood before Pharaoh. That's not named in the book of Exodus, but it's named in the traditional books of the Jews. Now as Jans and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also. And lastly, chapter 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead and his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, the instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, and so on. I commend to you a careful study of the book of Nehemiah. See the man's work, see the way in which they attempted to intimidate him, to despise him, to do anything to compromise him, and blessed be God, he was unmoved. We meet together, God willing, another time, and we shall look at the other side of the story. There is another side of the story. It isn't all darkness. There is faithful work being done. And the next time we meet together, we shall not be dealing with these sand ballots and tow buyers and all that crew. We shall deal with that little remnant that went back. And how faithfully they built. And the many ways in which God has spoken about their faithful work should give us a balancing encouragement for any sort of doubt we've had this evening to make us feel as though there's not much good in going forward. So may the Lord be pleased to help us and keep us loyal, faithful to that which God has given. And although we can't help but heed and read what folks do say about us, nevertheless, our times are in his hand, and our responsibility is unto him.